Daniel chapter 7 and 8 and to look at the setting leading up to Israel getting its first king because this is a, a study of how, even though this is the first time they will have a king, this section really is a study on how the problem that the people of Israel see, it's not the actual problem, but rather the problem is with the hearts of the people, and it's their refusal to trust in the Lord. And just prior to this, it's really an amazing thing because chapter 6 is all about the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Israel, and Israel's not involved in the retrieval. It's that the Philistines have captured the Ark, they take it back, it's the whole scene where they have the Ark and they set it before Dagon, and Dagon keeps falling over, and they're like, oh no, our God needs to be propped up, he keeps falling down. Um, and how Dagon actually falls, and it's this picture of the way that the statue would have fallen, is that it's actually bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant, not to put too fine a point on it. And... Um, the Lord ends up put, um, having all of these, these plagues on the Philistines until they realize, like, we need to restore the ark back to where it should be. So chapter 6 is, in a very real way, it's the Lord pursuing Israel without any of Israel's activity and ensuring that the presence of God returns to the place where he has said he would be. And so chapter 7 is very much now that the ark is been returned. It's not in Jerusalem at this point. It's not in the temple, but it's very much now addressing the hearts of the people and the things that are happening. So in chapter 7, verse 3, it says, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. So there's a few things that are repeated in here. What are the things that are repeated in the text here in order to emphasize their importance? Say again? The Lord. Punctuation, but what else? Their hearts. Their hearts. It's the Lord and it's their hearts. So even though this shouldn't be any news to Israel, Samuel is establishing what is important. There is a threat from the Philistines. That's significant, but it's not as important. The physical danger is not as critical as the hearts of the people, the thoughts, the plans, the intentions of the people, their interior life, their soul is more important. And the activity of the people's hearts is being paraded around through the activity of their bodies. That's what they're being reproved for. So what's their activity here that's not okay? What is it that they're engaged in? Idolatry. Idolatry. It's the worship of foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, also known as Satan worship. They're, they are actively engaged in evil. There is, in the spectrum of things you can do, there are things that are just not evil, they're just different. But this is evil. You can drive a foreign car and you can still love your country. You can eat food from the Middle East and not be a terrorist. Being foreign is not the definition of evil. We have plenty of local evil. We don't need to import more. But the worship of someone other than God, other than Jesus, is not different. It is evil. Verses... Uh, this is still chapter 7, verses 4 through 7. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. 
They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the, Lord, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So in verse 6, they gather at Mizpah and repent. The Philistines hear and they go to attack and destroy Israel. And then in verse 7, it says that when the sons of Israel heard this, they were afraid. Can you describe where this fear of the Philistines is coming from? What, what makes them afraid? Yeah. I'm sorry, say again? Yeah. And also, Israel has not gathered in order to fight. They've gathered in order to repent. Some of you, probably not me, gain energy from fasting. But if I'm fasting for a whole day and then I need to go run, that's not really what I want to do. So their fear is from a recognition that they are unprepared. They're afraid because they recognize that based on what they need to confront, they are vulnerable. That all aside, though, in this moment of fear, they do the right thing, which is in verse 8. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. This is the setting, right? Because based on how the Philistines are prepared, right, this is, this is going to be a cakewalk. There's not going to be any kind of problem because they have brought an army, um, and they know that the people they're attacking do not have, they have people, but they don't have an army. And this is the part where I kind of want to, I want to pan the camera angle to the Philistine army and insert like an advertisement of some kind to the effect of like what the Philistines don't know is that we've replaced Israel's false gods with Jehovah, the one true God. Let's see what happens next. Because previously, that idol worship, it's just dead stone and wood. And the Philistines, I believe, even if... This isn't what they would advertise. They would not really be expecting these false gods of Israel to come to their aid because they know that they can't. But in this repentance, you have a completely different outcome of this, of this scenario. In verse 10, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shem and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So the Philistines were physically prepared. 
which looks impressive. And then if you were to look at Israel, you would say, oh, well, they're only spiritually prepared. But that ended up being the deciding factor. The physical preparedness of the one side and the complete unpreparedness of the other side ended up having no bearing on the outcome of the circumstance. What was it that actually made Israel prepared? They repented. It was them admitting that they needed God. They didn't cause the thunder. They didn't know what the Lord would do. It, the value was not that in advance they understood how the Lord would resolve the circumstance. It's not that their understanding, their intellectual knowledge saved them. It's that they knew turning to the Lord was the answer. And how foolish does this outcome feel to the Philistines? Because they have an army that shows up at a worship ceremony, and then it's defeated. And if you're one of the few who survives and make it, makes it back, and you have to give an account of what happened. Oh, you've come back in victory? What does your after-action report look like here? Engaged Hebrew congregation at 1300, but encountered heavy thunder. <laughs> what? No, really heavy thunder. Okay? No, really heavy thunder. I don't understand. And then we were routed. You were routed by thunder? Really, yes, really heavy thunder, fine. Uh, rear guard tried to cover our retreat, but destroyed by ushers and greeters. <laughs> this is the quality of, of, of the people. Like the, their, their main attribute of Israel, it's that they are humble. They are willing to recognize that they don't have what it takes. This, this is the circumstance and I've written some of these verses out here, but this is where we see the, the, the truth that intellectually we'll read and we'll say, that sounds really good. But the truth of the, the promises of the Lord is what, ha, what preserved Israel on this day. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And here, right, if this is the entirety of Scripture, right, we have a, we have a happy ending. Hooray! Israel has repented, the threat has been stopped, the end. But this is where it would be like that dot, dot, dot. But for how long? Not long, because you immediately pass over, and in First uh, Samuel 8, verses 1 through 5, now it came about when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons to judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the nations. These elders, these learned and wise elders have a request for Samuel. What is it that they want? A king. They want to be like everybody else. They want to be like everyone else. 
jumping ahead. Yes. What's the three? What are the three reasons that they state why they want a king? They want to be like the nations. But there's there's other reasons in there, in uh, verse five. What are their other reasons? He's old. You didn't raise your sons well. Now, hang on. As a parent, now hang on. <laughs> that may be. There's no commentary. Let's not add that in. Um, it, it may be. Like, and this is something, again, like when we look at so many other... I hadn't planned on going down this route, but I think this is a wonderful thing to go down. There is a lot of commentary that we have in Scripture about specifically what happens, which is why I love the book of Judges, because it says this person did this, and it was evil. And I don't need to wonder, like... And there's so many other sections of scripture where I'm like, is that not okay? That sounds fine. Why is he being reproved? We don't know what kind of a parent Samuel was. We know that, if, for those of you that are parents, you can do things to raise your child, but there is always that decision of that child after a certain age where you can do everything right and they can say, actually, you know what? I am going to touch the stove. And you go, what? So it may be that, Samuel was a wonderful judge and a terrible father because he was absent as, you know, as basically this, this in-between leader of, of Israel. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's as his age. Sorry, go ahead, Porter. Yeah, which should have taken those boys with him. Or maybe he did. And maybe that was part of the trouble. Um, but... The elders say that it's he's old, his kids are worthless, and they want to be like the nations. So in other words, the elders here, representing the people, they recognize their vulnerability like at Mizpah. They understand that they like Samuel. They think he's wonderful. They want to keep him, but they know that they can't. Samuel is, ultimately, Samuel is just some guy, and it's God that's at work in him and through him. And that's something that the elders are ignoring here. The people love Samuel because how much they have seen God work in Samuel. And at this point, time-wise, Mizpah is about seven to ten years previously. And in all likelihood, they see the declining years of Samuel as an increasing threat that Israel is going to revert back to the way that things used to be. Which, for context, what is it? What circumstance that they're worried about returning to? What were those circumstances? Because it's the two books before Samuel. What is that time period known as? Judges, where you've got this tagline of everyone did right in their own eyes. And that is what they're afraid of returning to. Now, this is also the part here where I, I pause and I have to insert the snide comment to the elders of Israel of like, oh, you have, you have a good leader? You have a godly leader? Right now you have a godly leader and his confidence is in God. And this man prays and this man waits on the leading of his creator. That's the kind of leader you have right now? Hmm. That must be nice. I could do with that. So what does this man of God think of this plan that the elders have in verse 6? But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. In this setting, I mean, who wouldn't be offended 
by this. Hey, hey, Samuel, remember, remember how years ago the Philistines were going to attack us, but you prayed and God defeated them? Well, you're so old now. Not dead, but you're like really old. You've got to be 50 or 60. <laughs> Ew. Anyway, since you'll be dead soon, we're worried about what's going to happen to us. Therefore, we need a system like what the government of the Philistines is like. You remember the Philistines? You remember those? You do? Okay, well, you're really old, so we were worried you'd forgotten. But yeah, that enemy nation, Samuel, with the false gods, that's, that would be helpful, you know, so that we could be safe. That's what we want to be like, Samuel. That would be infuriating to hear that they have absolutely not gotten the point. We're going to continue with God's response to Samuel's prayer, but do y'all have any thoughts or comments that you want to share at this point? Yeah. That's true. I hadn't actually thought about that. It is what, what, is, what is best, but I think it's also where we, we look back on how things played out, right? And, uh, and God's response to Samuel's prayer, it, it kind of addresses some of this, but it's also recognizing that the Lord prophesies because he knows he, he's created time. This is my, my, my t- side tangent into metaphysics. By, have, by creating time, the Lord creates the beginning of time. Right? He exists outside of it. Time is something that's much smaller and less significant than he is. He creates the beginning of time, but by doing so, he can't help but also create the end of time at the same moment is a bad word. So him, his omniscience is the fact that it's a created medium, but he is able to create time in such a way that choice is still a reality within that. So he knows what will have happened, but still gives us the opportunity to choose for ourselves how we will or won't respond to things. So I think that's also a case of the, uh, the inevitability of Jesus is something that is exciting and it's encouraging for us to realize that, um, like so often said, like Jesus was never God's plan B. That was something that he had a understanding of the need that his creation was made with from the very beginning. So it was never that he deviated from his plan and then basically said, okay, Jesus, I guess you're going to have to intervene. Um, but I think the actual way that the king would be manifested, it's interesting to think that it might have actually turned out differently. But to get back on topic, um, 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 through 9, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So God very clearly states, they have rejected me from being king. 
meaning that what they want, they already have, but it's too much to ask to trust God. That is essentially their response here. Why is it too much to ask? Hasn't he been faithful and provided according to all that he has promised? Yes, he has, but they are not seeking God, and instead they are seeking things God can do which is very, very close, but very, very far. They're looking for what God can do instead of he himself. And we mock the foolishness and the short-sightedness of the elders here, but we're not superior to them because when we're threatened by, and you can fill that in for yourself, but whatever threatens us makes us recognize our vulnerability. The Lord never intends us to be invulnerable. He never intends us to be independent in that sense. It's in recognition of that vulnerability, do we respond to whatever it is that threatens us by turning to Jesus? Or do we look for a way to get artificial security like the nations? Samuel verses eight, uh, chapter eight, verses 10. So Samuel spoke all the words the, uh, of the Lord to the people who asked him, uh, asked of him a king, and he said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and some to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and, to, uh, and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, and your best young men, your donkeys, and make use of them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out, in that day, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So he's being very, very clear to say, like, you say you want a king. Do you understand that this is the laundry list of things that comes with having a king? And I want to define something here because I think culturally we're very, very removed from this reproof um, and more so that we realize. And I want to talk about not that I'm a nerd, but I'm a huge nerd. I want to define sizes of armies because you roughly have four sizes going from colossal, large, medium, and small. So colossal nowadays are expeditionary armies. This is they can deploy and they can sustain at scale. Um, the only countries that have armies of this size today are the United States, Great Britain, France, and Russia, though Russia has shown that theirs is less of an expeditionary and more of a perditionary force as everything continues to backfire. Those are your largest size armies. Lar those are your colossal size. Your large size are your defensive armies that can also do expeditionary work, but it's usually humanitarian reasons. Most of your other major nations throughout all of Europe are defensive armies. Your next size down, medium, are internal security armies. They're basically a police force for a country. Most of your armies throughout South America and Africa are internal security. And then size small are palace guard. They are armies designed to keep a current regime in power. And today, outside of Turkey, Iraq, uh, sorry, Turkey, Iran, and Egypt, the majority of armies in the Middle East are palace guard type armies. So 
with that context and then thinking about 1 Samuel, which of these armies does Israel have at this time? Do they have an expeditionary force? Do they just in mass move and deploy? They don't. Do they have a big defensive army? They have, they have nothing, which is complete foolishness. They don't have a huge standing army. And they don't appreciate the fact that they don't have this huge standing army. So explain this part then. Israel has festivals throughout the year, and they're commanded to travel to Jerusalem to participate in those festivals. And it's not like, hey, there's a lotto and some of you go. It's like everyone get in the car and head to Jerusalem. So when that happens multiple times a year, who's guarding the land? Who's standing at the borders? Nobody. There is no person, but God is. So if we only take the start of the conquest of Canaan, that time period, until now when Israel comes to Samuel and asks for a king, and they're saying, hey, this way that God contributes uh, to us and he guards and protect us, protects us continually, that really doesn't work for us anymore and we need security from a human king instead like the other nations. They're referring to a period of two and a half centuries of where this has been taking place. Two and a half centuries with no normal army to speak of. So they're saying we need a king because he does the king things and when the king things happen, then we're safe. And God is giving them yet one more chance to understand, like, this is what you're asking for. You're asking for all this rigmarole and all this stuff to gain safety. That's what you want? Can some of you please start thinking about if that's what we're going to get in order to get safety, where has our current safety always come from? This, in this explanation, appeal, reproof, God, through Samuel, wants them to comprehend the change that they're asking for and also to understand what it will look like because it has never looked like this before. And it's never looked like this before for Israel because God has sustained them constantly, which is the same that he does for us as well. Hey, yes. I think so much of it is that they are worried about when Samuel is gone, Samuel is the reason, and I think they're taking everything that's true of God and they're placing it on Samuel and saying, you're the one, Samuel, you're the one that's doing anything that's good at all here. And therefore, when you go, effectively, God will disappear when you disappear, Samuel. Therefore, we need a king so that we can be ready for when God is gone. And in that sense, oh my goodness, yes, that would be terrifying. Because apart from God, the kind of the working out of the time of the judges, it makes sense because it is everyone saying like, hey, nice coat, it's mine, right? And they don't want to return to that. But it's taking that recognition of vulnerability and saying, I see that I'm vulnerable. I don't see an answer. 
Therefore, if I can't think of an answer, there cannot be one because I'm super smart. That's the part that they don't say in that sense, but in the response, that's the response that you see. Samuel disappearing, we cannot allow his kids to take over because we can see they're no good. Therefore, we must come up with some way to solve the problem before it ever starts. Yeah. Because you, you think about it, and, and as believers, it's the same thing. Yes. Every other religion has this workspace, you know, that, yeah. that we always tend to run back to because it's a human thing. So I, I think that there's this whole, this, this other way of doing things is weird. show you here here's his idol this is our god whatever that looks like Mm -hmm. you know but it's like it's really weird to be this way we don't want to be this way anymore you know yeah it seems like that's part of it to me too yeah so you know i'm not real familiar with this part of the bible it's really fascinating to me but is is this about samuel's leadership maybe could have been better and explained to them how they were being provided for I think choice. I think, and I think that's that's the part where um, we don't want to believe of ourselves that we're really that needy, just as humans throughout all of existence, right? I pay taxes. I can't be that petty. You cut me off. I don't like you forever now. We, we, we want to believe that there is a... I should, I, should, I should go back. I said, I think that having been created by the Lord, there is a, there is a created need that we have. There is a, also a built-in recognition of what is good and true. But the way that we pursue those things is usually where we go wrong. It's that we see, like, this is true. Okay, now I'm going to implement it the way that I decide. And I think that's part of where the wheels come off in Israel. It's not that they don't have a God. It's not that they're not being kept safe. It's that I think they can see in the past maybe that that is what happened, but they don't want to believe that the Lord really was the source. Is that an Ark of the Covenant joke? <laughs> yeah, no, it very much is. And that's something that this isn't new to, this isn't new to the Old Testament, right? It's that we, we look at what the Lord did and we say, oh, okay, so he can do this. He can work between A and B. So now I know that he's that big. And the Lord's like, no, I'm not that small. And they're like, well, okay, so as long as the problem doesn't get any bigger than this, then God can handle it because I've never seen him do anything bigger, and I'm afraid that if it does get bigger, and that's where human coping mechanisms come in, where you're like, it's not actually that big of a problem. Don't tell me it's bigger, because I'm worried that my God isn't big enough. And the reality is, is the Lord saying, like, I've got a dump truck of problems for you. Every single one of them is bigger than your imagination of me, because I'm going to absolutely explode the, the size of what you imagine me capable of. 
I'm going to do it in possibilities, in, through impossibilities, so that you will understand that it was nothing else except me. Yes. And that's why they're Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's that they see what the problem is, is they want to control the problem. And this is not any kind of message against never plan. No. We have a, a I think, a stewardship responsibility within the things that the Lord's made available to us to take care of those to the best of our ability but to also recognize that there are times when the Lord has said, that's a really cute plan. However, I'm going to allow that to completely fall apart because you need to remember that while the planning is important, it is also something that needs to be submitted to me and that even if your plans fail, I do not. And that's an important lesson for us to learn. Chapter 8, verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and, get, and go out before us and fight our battles. So their response is, No, Samuel, we need a king because we don't have a king and nobody is our king at the moment. And Samuel, we need a judge because we don't have a judge and nobody is our judge at the moment. And Samuel, we need someone to go and fight our battles because we don't have anyone who fights and nobody fights for us at the moment. Yeah. There's a lesson in here about the power of peer pressure. And I see that here in verses 4 and 20, they want to be like the other. And I see that in politics, too, that one of the things that one of the strategies is to tell legislators, well, this state has this model policy or model law. Therefore, we should, too. And I think some of that in that there's, there's hidden this desire of, like, don't you want to be in right standing with God? Yes. Well, how do you know you are? Well, he said that I'm pleasing. He said that he's redeemed me. Okay, can you measure that? No. What do you do now? And that's the temptation is to say, look, this is, scripture is really clear. And the temptation is to turn away from that to anything else to say, I need a system that I can use in order to gauge exactly where I'm at. I need to prove to myself because I'm a little bit worried. What are you going to say? Powerful 
expectation of, of I'm not saying duty as Christians because we don't need that. Um, but but we're, just we're still tempted like, to want it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And what's also significant is that you can ultimately set up anything and you can always say, well, that's actually not enough. Did they have a physical representation of God? They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had everything that the Lord has established as well as all of their history was rooted in the fact that he was faithful. But after a while, it's just like, yeah, but it's always been that way. Can we get something better it's like, okay, and you just, the Lord continues to add and all this, the layered and nested symbolism that he pre-prepares throughout history for his people. But in any part of it, it's possible to be just, it becomes commonplace and it becomes pedestrian. That we stop being impressed with things and because I don't feel impressed, therefore it doesn't have any power. And it's that like, no, that is actually a thought that needs to be taken captive and submitted back to the Lord. We're almost out of time. I got more stuff, but I'll fast forward to, um, to Proverbs 16. And um, because the, the, the gist is that by trying to correct these bad circumstances with effort and with sincerity, they sincerely believe that this king will help them because no one wakes up in the morning and says, I need to figure out a bad solution to make my life worse. Nobody does that. But people, you look back and you're like, why did you think it was a good plan? And they're like, a king, we need a king. Wouldn't a king help? A king would absolutely help. Does anyone disagree with getting a king? No, a king would be great. That way when Samuel's gone, we'll have a king and the king will be absolutely fantastic. King, 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 king. They're making a bad circumstance worse with all this effort and with sincerity. And a lot of it comes down to this from Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean. Wait, there's more to that sentence. Let me finish that sentence. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. So we absolutely can say, I think this is a good idea. Good. Do you have 20 reasons why it is a good idea? Great. Does that make it a good idea? No. And I remember this. One of the biggest blessings was my time at Bible school and then going to college after that, because I'd have friends who would say, well, wh what do you think? What do you think I should do? Do you think I should do this? I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, Sam, I don't know. Yeah, but I'm like, I, I don't, I, I, I honestly don't know. I think you should pray about it, and I think you should read your Bible. Oh, okay, that's really good. That's really good. And a couple days later, but you, you really, th and it would usually be about, like, should I ask this girl out? It's in, inevitably, it came down to that. And I'm like, Sam, I have no idea. There's a specific guy that I'm thinking of. And it's like, and I had, to, I had to basically put it into context that says, look, as a child of God, we are sheep and we have a shepherd. But if you are coming to me, I am a co-sheep. And if I give you 20 reasons why it's a good idea, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. I, and if you go and get a consensus from 40 other sheep and you start weighing like, well, how many good, how many pros and how many cons? You need to go to your God. And if he can't communicate, you've got such bigger problems than this potential relationship. And if you think it's right, perfect, and then take that to the Lord. Because, of course, all of your ways will seem right in your own eyes. But that doesn't make it so. But you have a God who will clarify this for you. He will weigh your motives. And odds are, whatever the crisis is, the Lord has brought to you because it's maybe one of the few things that he can use to get your attention and to get you to admit that you don't have it all together and that you do need to go to him. And as a crisis, it is an opportunity to pray. 
But the doom that you foresee because you don't know how it's going to work out, that will not come to pass because you have a God. That is the true blessing. I'll pray. Father, we thank you so. We thank you for your love. We thank you that your patience is never, is never wasted, that you continue to pursue and to love because of how much we mean to you. We thank you so that you allow what is impossible for us so that we will know that we are held and we are loved, that we have a God. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you so in Jesus' name. Amen.